Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Waitley. Good morning. It was a watershed draft on a number of fronts. It's worthy of a few snap judgments, I reckon. Shall we swap some thoughts? one 736 736 Snap judgments on the first round of the AFL National Draft and 0433-98-11-16. What occurred to you most significantly? The staging of it, the length of it, the numbers that were picked. Here's a few of my thoughts. The first, the first is the sheer feel-good factor as 29 careers came to life, and we shouldn't just skip past that. The draft is built on hopes and dreams, the hopes of fans and the dreams of the kids. There were wonderful scenes of emotional mums and proud dads and sprightly nans and mates determined to ruin perfectly manicured hair before the chosen one took the stage, and I think the best moment was when Connor O'Sullivan heard his best mate's name get called and rushed off from meeting Joel Selwood to celebrate the moment. It was pure exuberance and youthful mateship. There were shocks and bolters declared. I'm not quite sure it was as, as random as that, but there were kids without their junior club polos because they didn't figure they were factoring until tonight. They went as the support act and became the star turn. There were great names. Phoenix... Gothard and Colton Bolstrup. We're going to have fun with those over the years. And we re- replenished the ranks with youngsters who play like Dustin Martin and Charlie Curnow and Harris Andrews. There was the next Zach Bailey and there was even a new Justin McInerney that came to bear. Iconic numbers were passed on. I thought this ritual was really significant. Nick Nat handed number nine to Harley Reid. And that ritual told you how important Reed is to West Coast in a single image. It ended eight months of debate about whether West Coast would pick him and whether he was prepared to go there. And then there was Joel Selwood handing 14 on to O'Sullivan. The size of that Guernsey suggested the Cats knew exactly who they were choosing. This draft was defined by the Allies. And that's a night that the national competition has been waiting for for generations. It was far less heartland Victoria populating the future, but rather Palm Beach, Corumban and North Launceston and Albury. Gold Coast matched four players in the first round. Tasmania produced four. And that in itself prompted two contemplations. It's a heartening glut of first rounders out of the Apple Isle that hasn't been seen for a long time. And in a few years' time, it's going to need to be the new norm. The second was that could those boys in their fifth season be the core of the Devils inaugural team in 2028? 
in the future, one of the foundation principles must be that no Tassie kid ever leaves the island to play AFL again. They need the ring fence around the Apple Isle. The main theme, though, of the draft was the sheer absurdity of 29 players constituting the first round. To me, this feels like a tipping point. We have an 18-team competition, and the second round starts at 30. It, It does make a mockery of it to some degree. A point system implies that there should be a moment when you've maxed out and can't afford to keep matching bids That's not really how it works, is it? I'm no sympathiser with West Coast, but a team that is historically bad got pick one and their next chance is pick 30. The team one place above them amassed picks two, four, 20, 22 and 23. If North Melbourne rise before West Coast, it's not going to take a mathematician to figure it out. Last night, it actually reminded me that, remember that World Swimming Championships in Rome where every world record was obliterated by the super suit swimmers and everyone knew that it had gone too far? Gil McLaughlin said in September the AFL chooses compromise and manipulation in all sorts of different forms, from compensation and assistance to academy picks and father-sons. A first round of 29 picks? I think that's time for a major review. There's a scenario in which there are fewer picks tonight than there were last night, which tends to weaken the whole notion of the first round. And that doesn't even start with the idea of, how about the contemplation of trading future third round picks? That's pretty much the norm. That's why it went so long, incidentally. There's no real need to rush draft night. If you're bored, flick it off. Let the kids have their time. Was that the best staging of the event? Formal and slick used to be the way. Now, relaxed and casual in a pub environment. That was quite striking. I actually didn't mind it. A bit less po-faced than it has been in the past. I had one other snap judgment. I came away with the feeling that Damien Hardwick and Alistair Clarkson can't help but be successful in their second tenures. And when the stories are written, last night is going to be a bedrock for what's achieved in those new eras with the draft hands they were able to collect. It all combines to emphasise the game's capacity to renew as the stars that will soon capture our imaginations were presented as youngsters on a night that's themes are largely hopes and dreams. Oh, the butterflies said a bit there when the when the when it started them, but um, yeah, it's just a big relief. And no, there was a lot of huge opportunities that come my way this year, and I was um happy to take it with both hands. I appreciate all you guys, and thanks for the support. And I couldn't do it without you guys, so love you all. Yeah, I'm super excited. They have a super exciting list, and obviously Clarko coming along. So yeah, the future's bright, and I'm keen to be a part of it. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, Joel's obviously a legend of the game, so um to be presented the jumper by him's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, it's so special to do it with all my family that you just saw. There. Um, it's huge and yeah so proud to be officially a Gold Coast Suns player. Yeah it's really exciting to you know join that club that you've you know been involved with from such a young age but yeah just can't wait to get stuck into it. I'm over the moon to, to work under the likes of Clarko and such a young up and coming developing list I'm, I'm really excited to be sort of part of that journey and I'm just keen to get to the club and develop those relationships and just um, you know, really get to work. Oh, this is amazing. I feel like I'm in a dream again. Um, so grateful for the opportunity to be joining such a prestigious club like Collingwood and all the great mentors around me that will be at the club. I can't wait to get stuck into it. I'm going to be a very good person around the club um, that's going to really buy into the values and direction that we want to go. And 
hopefully be part of back-to-back. <laughs> Harry DeMarty, I think that was the best answer of the night. Go to Collingwood and hopefully be part of back-to-back. AFL draft segments for tyre power, your tyre experts for P-plate draftees. Just swap a few snap judgments with me. I can't be the only one who feels like 29 picks in the first round was was just absurd. Uh, Kaz is in Essendon. Welcome to you, Kaz. Hey, Jared. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I agree with you. I think top 20 would have been enough. I sort of switched it off um, after Melbourne sort of got their picks as well. Um, but I thought it was well done last night, having their mates and all the family there. I think that was really good. Showed how excited and all the work um, behind the scenes has gone into these kids. Just on Melbourne's picks, I loved it. Um, there was a few criticisms from Melbourne supporters. Why didn't we pick up Dan Curtin? Well, to be honest, we really don't need another defender. They weren't swayed because of all the talk about him, and he is a very, very good player. But we went... This is where you've got to be smart in the draft. We went for what we needed. Now we need an outside, elite, kicking player and speed. And that's what we got in young uh, Caleb Windsor. And also to pick up... I'm very excited about Colt. Um, he's one out of the box. I've been sort of watching him um, in the waffle. He's played senior footy. He's ready to go, and he's going to bring so much excitement to the club. And I've already got a nickname for him and Cozzy, the Special Ks. <laughs> very nice, Kaz. Very nice. I do love how engaged fans are in what happens and who's being chosen. Uh, Dan Curtin's the most fascinating draft example I've seen in many a year. I'm going to have a little chat to him later on. So uh, that fell so well for Adelaide, it was my gut feeling. Harley Reid endured the big experience right from the start. So eight months of speculation around him, including whether he was prepared to go to Perth and whether West Coast was going to pick him. And that all came to fruition last night, although we've known for a few weeks. And in fact, Goss told us a few months ago that that's exactly what was going to happen. Uh, Andrew's in Nidri. Hello, Andrew. Oh, uh, Jared, thank you for getting my call. Look, um, uh, well done, North and Gold Coast. A, a, a tick, tick for them. Um, uh, issue about uh, Melbourne suburbia not being able to... Uh, not a lot of players being drafted within Melbourne itself um, area. And they came from the country and all over Australia, which is good. Uh, but there's a question mark on on um, how healthy Melbourne football is in the suburbs. Um, the other thing is Essen paid overs for... Um, and this is what I'm really ringing for, Nat Caddy. Um, I think they panicked. Um, um, I don't think Geelong would have taken him. I think they would have gone for O'Sullivan because they need a, a, a key back. And I think giving up pick 31 is a lot. And I hope Nat Cat, if Nat Caddy is as good as they think he is, well, he should be playing the first round and he should be basically nearly uh, vying for a Brownlow. Um, well, that, that, that is a high bar, Andrew. It was so interesting... The size of I thought the tell was the size of the jumper that Joel Selwood had to present to O'Sullivan. Uh, they weren't picking Nate Caddy, and they flipped one place. So it was declared genius on the broadcast. Uh, but I was a bit with you, Andrew. I, it looked to me like they flinched. Um, judging by what happened next, is Geelong had no intention of picking Caddy and were going for O'Sullivan, and had that lined up, and they picked up an extra pick along the way. So uh, that's. Yeah, that was a curiosity in its own right. Uh, the only draft guide I need is Cal Toomey's. Uh, he had the first seven in locked in eight 
went to the same team with a different pick and they're nine. The, the, the flip point was Curtin to Adelaide on the trade up and O'Sullivan to Geelong. Um, and then he locked back in with 13, uh, 11, 13, 14, 15, 16. So a, a great service, really, that Cal Toomey does to all of us, the way that he researches it and follows it, and we hear him on the station regularly. So his guide was brilliant. There were two names in his table that haven't been taken yet, Mitchell Edwards and Logan Morris. So I would presume that they are going to be the features early tonight. But it is a strange old system where we have an 18-team competition and the team that finished last gets pick one, and then the next pick is 30. And I'm no West Coast sympathizer, but that does seem out of whack. Here's a uh, a few of your snap judgments. 40 Winks, Temper Text, 0433981116, Temper, a mattress like no other. Uh, J-Dogs are great dogs, man. Couldn't believe the similarities between the dogs. Number six pick, Riley Sanders and Jason Horn Francis, both strongly built 185 centimetre blondes, mids of Indigenous heritage with similar struts and socks ups. Socks up, laugh out loud. As a Dogs fan living on the Gold Coast, it's great for the code for 10 allies' kids to be selected on the first night of the draft. Footy in Queensland is developing for both boys and girls. Cheers, Kev, on the Gold Coast. It was a landmark night on that front for sure and certain. Can you please explain why the first round lasted 29 picks and how North Melbourne had four picks in the first round and West Coast only one? Thanks. Well, that's the nub of it. There's... There's compromises and manipulation right throughout the system, and it, it did reach its zenith, I thought, last night. So it, people will zero in on the academy picks. There are father-sons. There are assistance packages. There's compensation, all that goes into that. Snap judgment. Someone talk us through the North Melbourne decision to move to navy blue off-field apparel. Visual identity of an already niche club compromised. Uh, hi, G, you're absolutely correct regards the AFL draft and competition unevenness. Mid-table clubs are destined to remain mid-table ordinary given the structure of the draft. That's from Ross. By far the best part of the night with a handful of bolters getting selected who had only come to draft night to support their more fancied mates. The genuine shock in their faces were priceless. Cheers, James. Matched only by their need to quickly find a polo, which didn't fit them. Fans are generally only interested in their own team. They would have watched if their team were involved. I'm a North fan, and I had a watch party at my house with friends. Loved it. Great stuff. The three-hour draft would have suited you well. Pat's in Melton. Welcome to you, Pat. G'day, Jared. How you going, mate? I'm well. Um, uh, I just wanted to quickly respond to what that other gentleman said regarding and also your thoughts on Essendon trading up to get Nate Caddy. The reason the Bombers gave up pick 31 was because there was another club involved who also wanted Nate Caddy and Essendon had no choice. If Even though they were aware that Geelong most likely wouldn't take, uh, take Nate, that they were going to go throw Sullivan, they had to do the deal... Uh, because if they didn't do it, somebody else would have and, and got into that position that we were trying to obviously uh, get to get uh, Nate Caddy. That's yes. my mail from the club. Yes, that's it, Pat and Colin sharing that view as well. Essendon gave up pick 31 to Geelong to move up because they got the mail. A coach of another club was prepared to swap picks with Geelong to get in front of Essendon and grab Caddy. So, Pat, Cole... Excellent. That That's great insider information. So uh, Essendon had no choice. Geelong had another suitor for that pick, and it wasn't 
it wasn't the cats who were going to take Caddy. It was the undisclosed. Cal Toomey will dig that out for us, I'm sure, along the way. Good on you, Pat. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. More of your 40 Winks temper text, 0433981116. Temper a mattress like no other. From a Carlton fan, it just felt really weird to wait until 9.40pm for Carlton to have one pick on the night. It's usually five number one picks every year, Rob, from Avondale Heights. What a funny old first round. Imagine if there were more picks last night than there are tonight. It would make a bit of a mockery of it. Share your thoughts, snap judgments on the draft. Dan Curtin is going to join me shortly. And with the Allies providing a critical mass watershed moment for the national competition, Mark McVeigh was the coach of all of those players. I'm going to touch base with him next. Now, back to Waitley. The feature of this draft, what makes it a watershed, is the critical mass of players, the cluster in the first round from the Allies. This is the moment that the national competition has waited generations for, really. It materialised under the coaching of Mark McVeigh, so nobody knew these boys better. And while he's now moved into the Sydney Swans coaching staff formally, I just want to throw him back to his previous job as the Allies coach for this interview. Mark, I feel like saying congratulations and welcome to the program. G'day, Jared. How are you? Nah, thank you. It's um, been a, been a wonderful night for a, for a lot of young men and their family. Did you feel like a, a proud father and mentor last night? Oh, I think it. I think it's always nice to be able to um, you know have a small part in in their journey, um, which was fantastic. I mean, it was a you know for them to speak so highly of the allies when when they get interviewed around their experience. I think that just makes everyone within the programs um, feel great. Yeah. The the numbers, just the raw numbers. I know it was an extended first round at twenty nine, but um, it it felt did, did it feel like a watershed to have so many of those allies players taken so high? I think so. I think I think it what it highlights, Jared, is um, I think it's a validation for a lot of people, especially in the northern states and of course Tasmania and uh, the other territories, is that you know the the work that has been done. Um, the coaching that has been put in from all the various states um, and the programs, you know, you just have to look at Caden Cleary, uh, being in the Swans Academy since he's 10 years old. Um, and, you know, it's just an amazing to see the Swans take him in the draft. You know, the, the Swans Academy right now are just having an intake of around 750 kids and all those kids last night will be thinking, wow, I've got to be a part of this because there is a clear pathway. So I think it was a watershed moment for the academies in the northern States, um, but also the, the pathways that the coaches and all the people that are providing it. Is it important for the national competition to have that, that those players come through? It's very important because I think, you know, there's unique challenges wherever um, everyone has their challenges, whether you're in WA, uh, Victoria or New South Wales. Um, there's unique challenges around that and we, and we understand that. Um, sometimes um, not everyone is across um, those challenges, um, but certainly the people that were that are in those states, especially in our northern states, um, they understand the challenges, they respect them, and there's a hell of a lot of hard work put into making sure that the pathway is clear, making sure that they get the best coaching, but also um, they can see a clear vision to what they're doing. I, you know, clearly um, the players that got drafted uh, last night from the Allies, especially that are aligned to the academies, you know, they get a look at first-class facilities from a young age. 
They see their, their heroes walking around. They train in the same facilities when they get the opportunity. And I think um, last night was a, just a, a massive validation of uh, what, what they're doing is, is fantastic. How big for Tassie, Mark, at a time where the, the licence has been granted and there's been a lot of discussion around the, the dearth of draftees that have come out of Tasmania to have four first-round picks at a moment where the level of investment is about to burst forth and, and the hope that this will again become the norm as, as once it was? Well, it's huge. I think um, I think you've got to just look at you know the depth of what they've got and you know there's more to come with Tasmania. There's no doubt about it. Uh, their program has been strong for many, many years. Uh, they're well led by a group of coaches in Tasmania that quietly go about their business but are good footy people. Um, and, you know, I've met them. Um, I understand where they come from and what they're trying to do. You know, they've they've bred these kids all the way through uh, and they love their footy. I think it's just a, a great thing for Tasmania uh, in regards to the players that have come out there and the quality, you know, as you said, you know, Four, you know, three or four players with high quality coming out of there that are just sensational kids that um, come out of good football programs and strong footy programs. It just shows that you know footy in Tasmania is thriving and is only going to get better with obviously the new team coming in. The Palm Beach Corumban Lions were the toast <laughs> of the draft last night. They did make the most of it too, didn't they? That was good fun. Yeah, yeah I'm glad I wasn't Jonathan Brown. <laughs> last night looked like it was pretty crazy. <laughs> so how strong so the Gold Coast match four picks inside 26. How strong has the hand of being able to gather Jed Walter, Ethan Reed, Jake Rogers and Will Graham in one go? I've always said coaching is a lot about timing. <laughs> and, um, you know, Damien Harwick has timed this one perfectly. I think, um, you know, obviously he's a wonderful coach and his record uh, tells you that. But um, the, these three, you know, four, you know, there's, there's Will in there as well. But the three players that we're talking about uh, are just players you can build your club around for a long period of time. And I, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, Ethan Reed, he's just, you know, I think he was likened to the unicorn of the draft. I mean, he's, He's a player that has a unique ability to play multiple positions, um, can build a team around him. I'm really interested to see where he settles. You know, I personally think he'd be a wonderful centre-half back, um, but, you know, his ruck craft is great as well. So I'm really interested to see where he goes. Jed Walter is another one that um, you can build a team around him. Uh, Jake Rogers has got great leadership and, and a beautiful midfielder. A little bit of, you know, Daniel Kerr about him, the way he plays his footy. So... There's three genuine players that are, you, you already can see there's an emotional connection through their academy, which I think is wonderful. So you think, geez, they're going to be long-term players with an emotional connection. They'll play for the club. They'll lift the club to where they need to. And there'll be no danger of, you know, other clubs in, in the near future, um, you know, trying to get these players because you can see there's an emotional attachment there. And I reckon that holds you in good stead. So they've done really, really well on their three top-class players. And I guess that's... Uh, you're seeing this firsthand in Sydney now is is for all the wrinkles that are, there have been in, in bringing the Gold Coast through is to have the players come through their own system, they belong to it, so the churn factor just gets removed in one go. That's right, and I think you're exactly right. And I think the, the other part of this is the, the, the young kids that are in these academies now and as I said, they're coming in at 10 and 11 and they make their way all the way through until they're able to be drafted. You know, look at that and say, well, if, if, I, can do the, if I can do the right thing, they're well coached, there's a clear pathway. I love Gold Coast, I love Brisbane, I love the Giants or I love the Swans. 
uh, it's generational support, it's family support, and it just brings a whole new breed of footballers through. So, and that's and and that's clear with the W as well with the academies. Um, the, the young the young women that we've got coming through is incredible as well. You've got a couple of young men that you'll continue your journey with now, Caden Cleary and Will Green, who have come through the Swans Academy and, and been drafted in last night. So yeah. moving into the, the coaching staff, will give you hands-on experience with those boys. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I've obviously spent a lot of time with Caden uh, for 12 months um, with the Academy and also um, the Allies. But uh, Will, Will obviously is a different one, but um, being from Victoria, but we're very excited about the players that we were able to get into the draft. Um, clearly, they were outlined beforehand. They fell where we wanted them to fall, which was fantastic. And it's always great to see targeted players that you like um, come up uh, when, you, when you need to draft. So I think um, all of us at the Swans are, are pretty happy with, with what we've been able to do so far. Mark, you know the landscape in Victoria as well as you do nationally as um, now. Is to the... Uh, to the unease or the fear mongering that might happen in Melbourne today, seeing the the critical mass of players through academies and a, and a, a first round that goes to twenty nine, which which was rather remarkable. W- would you caution yeah. against that? Uh, look, no, I, I, I would because I think uh, what we're seeing is um, ebbs and flows of obviously the academies. You know, if you know, if I did look uh, deep into next year's draft from an academy point of view, especially in New South Wales or, or a Swans one, it's it's probably not as deep. Um, and I think this is just one of those years where it just all came together. Now, clearly, you know, you have to look at Phoenix Gothard, who goes at pick 12. Now, you know, before the Allies uh, campaign, he wouldn't have been in uh, probably in pick 40. He wouldn't have been any earlier than that. But... He has an outstanding campaign, but he's supported by really good players and you get elevated and he goes to pick 12 to the Giants. Now, clearly, he's a needs player because, um, you know, it supports their game plan. He's really quick, really agile, gets up and down the ground. So I think, yeah, I, I would caution against it. I think there's, you know, why it's a fantastic year this year and all credit goes to all the people that are involved. Um, it's not going to be like this all the time. There's a lot of hard work to be done. And if you think about it, Caden Cleary started at 10 years old, would have played with, you know, um, hundreds and hundreds of kids that have come through the academy. He pops out. He's the only one that gets drafted as an 18-year-old after of all those kids from 10 or 11 years of age. A lot of hard work and it's just one. So, you know, it's not... Um, for me, I would caution, absolutely, there's a lot of hard work still to be done. Yeah, not not rivers of gold, but just an ebb no. and flow of, of the talent yeah. that you might be able to get. That's right. Yeah. Hey, Mark, uh, thanks for your insights today and great work throughout the year and good luck on that, that Swans coaching panel now. Yeah, good on you, Jared. Thanks for having me, mate. Terrific. Mark McVeigh, he was the All-Australian coach from the under-18s. He led the Allies to an unbeaten run at the championship and the title and that critical mass of players on a watershed night for the draft on that front. And um, 0433 98 11 16 40 wings temper text temper a mattress like no other. You can call with your snap judgments from the draft 1300 736 736. Here's Nathan in the newsroom. Nathan, thank you. Here's some of your thoughts. Good morning, Jared. I agree that the informality of the draft was an improvement, but as a parent, I have to point out the important difference between a relaxed atmosphere and the guy on the microphone suggesting the newly drafted lad go the knuckle on his older brother. That was an awful moment. Very amateurish last night, Jared. Draft night needs to be a lot more polished, uh, needs a lot more polish to be applied. Looked like a big schoolies night on the Gold Coast.
Why is it a strange system, Jared? in your mind? The AFL are doing everything in their power to make certain clubs more competitive. It's not strange. It is what it is. Surely you can see this, Craig from Keelor. I have no problem at all with Gold Coast. We should be celebrating their academy as the best in Australia. I want to know why Swans and Giants academies have not been able to, to develop the same amount of talent each year when they have access to a bigger pool. Um, the ebbs and flows that Mark McVeigh just described might be an answer for that. Nay to the draft. Naysayers, Jared Swans, Tasmania kids coming through. Swan, uh, Suns, Tasmania kids coming through. Swans Academy. The Kangaroos took kids from everywhere. The market forces will even it out when the time is right. But if you want a truly national competition, this is what it looks like. More of it, people. That's from Ian. There can't be the over-reliance on Victoria the way there has historically been in the heartland for it to be the truly national competition. This is the breakout moment. The question is whether that, um, whether everyone has access in a way that represents equity and, and fairness. We don't really do equity and fairness though, do we? Now the Suns have local kids playing for them instead of blow-ins. Watch the crowds come to watch these boys. That's from Clint. With all the Victorians and other AFL states going to Queensland, those kids are going to continue to play AFL up here so the academies are just going to get stronger would be interesting to see the participation numbers after covid and after covid in queensland thanks daniel you're not the only one making that point the the social markers that play a role in it as well hi jared i agree it's a compromised system however west coast missed the mark by not trading for multiple picks and taking the best kid where north and gold coast took multiple picks and now have multiple young talent draft what you need not what is a single best. That's from Greg. And on they go. I'll share more with you as we work our way through. Dan Curtin had a fascinating draft experience right throughout the year, really. He's going to the Adelaide Crows. Going to touch base with him next. This is Waitley for Hyundai. The Hyundai 2023 SUV event is on now and Host Plus. Waitley on SEM. I feel like Dan Curtin had the most fascinating draft experience the Gold Coast Crowers text through, this is the most excited I've been about a draft pick in, well, ever. So stoked about Curtin. Shall we meet him? Dan Curtin, welcome to SEN. G'day, thanks for having me on. Maybe even more so, welcome to the league. What a big night in your life. Yeah, no, it's absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, absolutely stoked to be going to the Crows. How did you How did you sleep last night after all of it? Oh, yeah, slept well. It took me a while to get to sleep. was a bit excited. Um, but, yeah, no, slept, slept very well and woke up a very happy person. So. Do you have a million messages? Yeah, yeah, got quite a few to get to, so I'll probably sort that all out at the airport on my way home. <laughs> um, been, a, been a big few months, I'm sure, for you, Dan. So last night, um, just in waiting for your name to get called and wondering where you were going to go, um, what, what was that like? Um, well, yeah, the whole time I was kind of sitting on the edge of my seat just waiting for my name to get called out. And, um, yeah, it fin- finally happened. And, um, yeah, definitely didn't – well, I wasn't wasn't really knowing what to expect. But, um, yeah, just really grateful for it to finally happen. Did you have a, a almost a checklist of clubs? Well, I wonder whether it will be them or them or them. What sort of idea did you have? Yeah, well, I mean, um, once it got past a certain pick, we knew that it – could literally be a list of um, five or six people, five or six clubs. So um, yeah. Had you had much conversation with the Crows? Um, a little bit, a little bit. We knew um, they were definitely interested, and um, 
yeah, and then what what happened happened. So, does what does life in Adelaide do for you as an idea? I oh, know sounds awesome. I've um, been over there a few times and absolutely loved it. So yeah, really excited. The the period that you've had, Dan. So take me back. Um, we know that you're going to be one of the key draft figures as almost as we enter the year. Did did it? What did it do to your year of football as you're just trying to to go about and learn and improve while while all of the future conversation is happening as well? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was yeah. I was very happy with the year, um, but yeah, it didn't really start it off how I wanted to. But uh, yeah, in the end, all worked out, and um, yeah, really happy and grateful. I was actually play full full um, year of footy. Did you have? Um anxieties around at all around what the future might look like how did you handle it oh not at all um yeah the dream dreams have been to play afl so worked as hard as possible to make that come true and um yeah wherever i end up be totally grateful for it and um yeah really happy to be ending up with the adelaide grows was there a time where you wondered whether you'd be an eagle oh like yeah obviously but there was also times where i um wondered where i'd be at any other clubs so um, yeah. Tell us, so part of your journey has been conversations with Alastair Clarkson, which we've all sort of heard about, know nothing of. Is, is how, how has that been, meeting Clarko and, and the idea of potentially being at North? Oh, yeah, no, it was awesome chat. Um, yeah, caught up with him the day before the draft and, um, yeah, had a good chat. Uh, but, yeah, that was kind of first opportunity to um, properly meet him one-on-one. Uh, but yeah, no, it was um, it was it was good fun. I'm just finally happy that I'm actually landed somewhere. So yes, yeah, yeah. So did did you think did you know whether North Melbourne was a possibility last night after meeting with him the day before? Oh yeah, knew knew it was a possibility, but um, yeah, nothing was 100% set in stone. So um, yeah, pick after pick was just complete surprise. Yeah, so the the crows it is. Did you get to meet Matthew Nix last night? Yeah, got to meet him. Yeah, it was awesome. What did he tell you about uh, about what's coming? Oh, just just let me know. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be a hard preseason, but um, you know, I had a had a good chat with him, and um, yeah, got to know him a bit more. So, what do you do with your life? So you, you go back to Perth and then pack up and move to Adelaide. What was the next few days look like for you? Yeah, so I go back to Perth. Um, yeah, spend a bit of time with friends and family, and then um, yeah, head straight over on the weekend. Ready for day one. <laughs> when is day one? Is that next week? Yeah, I think it's Monday. Monday <laughs> next week. So really excited. Yeah, is that uh, so excited? Is it at all daunting as well? Oh yeah, definitely. But at the same time, like um, been been waiting for this moment, and the past few weeks have been a big lead up. So um, yeah, I'm just prepared for it, and I'm really excited. How ambitious are you for for next year, Dan? Will, will you set yourself to play early? Yeah, um, yeah, I've definitely got goals that I'm going to set for myself um, and definitely going to try to put my best foot forward for that. And uh, But if not, then I'll just go back to training hard and keep pushing for a spot every week. What what spot would you like to find yourself at? Is The, the versatility is a big part of your story. Where, where, where have you played your best footy so far? Um, oh, I'm not, haven't really talked too much about positioning with um, anyone yet, but definitely think I'll be pushing for a spot somewhere in the back line. Um, and if I'm lucky enough to be able to get that spot, then um, yeah, I'll be stoked. And so I guess everybody's got a, a theory about the young players as they come through and, and whether you're the intercept defender, whether you're the tall defender, how do you see yourself? 
Um, oh, to be honest, I like um, it's probably not the answer you're looking for, but yeah, I'm really, really happy to kind of play any position that um, the team needs me for. So yeah, whatever that is, um, yeah, I'll be really happy. The, the most striking aspect of last night, Dan, is just how long you would have all been dreaming of of your league career, and it becomes a reality. How far back could you trace it? Oh, definitely to when I started. Like when you're a young young boy, you always um. Imagine playing AFL and think it's a dream, but um, yeah, it never really becomes a reality till that final year of footy when you've actually got a proper chance, proper chance to put your best foot forward. And um, but yeah, no, nah, so it's been it's been a few years in the making. Yes, yeah. did it become more intense as each year went by, and you realise as you grow that you've got ability and that it might actually be possible? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Um, yeah, every year gets you get a bit more put a bit more thought into it and get a little bit more nervous and um yeah no but this year's been absolutely great and um yeah who did you have with you last night to to share it with in melbourne yes i had a lot of the family had um two best mates brother mum dad um granny uncle and manager and then i'm talent manager from claremont so that that, that's fantastic that so many of you are able to share it will will it make it something that you'll always look back on fondly yeah, 100%, 100%, definitely going to be something I'm going to look back on for a long time. Um, probably one of the best nights of my life, so, yeah. yeah. And obviously, it was a long night. Did you get to go out and have dinner as as a collective afterwards, or what did you do once the formalities had finished? Yeah, yeah, just hung around for a bit, um, had a bite to eat, and then kind of got home because it all ended pretty late. So, um, yeah, I was, I was exhausted after that. So yeah. it was nice to get home and just have a bit of thought to myself. So, yeah. Terrific, Dan. It's great to share it with you the morning after. We'll follow your journey and we'll look forward to that day where you play your first game next year. Well done. Perfect. Thank you very much. Now, back to Waitley. Feel your thoughts to round off the draft discussion for the time being. Shout out to Jason Jeffries from Palm Beach Currumbin High School. Coach the three boys that have gone to the Suns in the AFL program at the school. What a great effort to have three go in the first round. That's from Craig. It's amazing to see local Gold Coasters drafted. I played in the first Broad Beach Juniors in the 1970s till the late 80s. So, so many great footballers missed out from those days. My mate, Captain Queensland Teal Cup every year, not even looked at. He was a gun. It's unreal for these local kids. That's from Matt. And the Suns Academy is now producing what the AFL dreamed of 14 years ago. The four last night, Leo Lombard next year, and then a crop of five or six in 2025. The Suns won't be able to keep them all. Well, last night suggests they might. The interesting one will be Jeff White's boy Kalani in 2025, as he will have the choice between Melbourne and the Suns. That's Ben on the Gold Coast, the hotbed of footy right now. Gideon Haig in the studio next. This is Waitley. There are so many messages around the AFL draft last night. I will come back through them. Maybe I'll round out our conversation with this. Mark said this through. Stop being so politically correct, Jared. Last night shows how inequitable the system is. Call it out, Jared. Run your club poorly and the AFL bail you out. North. West Coast, one pick for finishing bottom. Swan as Suns gifted the finals. What more can I say? Plenty. Call it out, Jared. Get some cane corns in here. Stop the powder puff. Good on you, Mark. It's early on a Tuesday morning for that. A 29 pick first round. Uh, so more in that vein and uh, the more measured as we go. Um, I, in my little time off, I had one book to read 
I got to the end of Gideon Haig's The Girl in Cabin 350 and thought, what will I read next? And in the post the very next day came Gideon Haig's next book, Ashes 2023, a cricket classic. What could be more perfect than to go from one to the other? And oh, our timing is deluxe here. Gideon, welcome to the studio. Great to be here, Jared. Are these books 49 and 50? Yeah, they are actually. Raise yeah, the bat yeah. and, I've, and I've just received advanced copies of 51. <laughs> and I'm hard <laughs> nice. at work on 52. <laughs> Good stuff. I'll talk to you about both of those. But shall we revel a little bit in, in the World Cup achievement? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was so um, captivating yesterday. How, what have you made of it with uh, 24 hours to ponder it? Well, it had the right outcome. And I'm not just saying that because Australia won, but because if India had won it would have been a question of what was the last six weeks about? You know, it had been so amply scripted in advance that this was going to be just a, a pageant of Indian self-celebration leading up to the, uh, to the inevitable coronation. So to get a result like this, well, that's what sport's all about. That you, in the end, for all the fact that it's 1.3 billion and the world's largest cricket stadium with the Prime Minister in attendance, it's 11 versus 11 on the day. And... Two evenly matched sides played a really good game of cricket. And Australia, unfancied at the top, probably um, by most of us, but maybe not by themselves. You know, having watched them this year in India and in England, uh, you know, this is a team that is capable of striking back from adversity. There's something to be really proud of uh, in that sense. You know, they got absolutely pantsed in the first two sets matches in India earlier this year, two and a half days each. And they came back and won the third. And no one thought they'd do that. Uh, they held their own against England, who were rampant all over them for, uh, for five test series and, uh, and ended up retaining the Ashes. And this time round, well, no stars, some virtuosic individual performances for sure, you know, um, by, uh, notably by Maxwell. But in the end, it was that team where someone puts their hand up in every single game. Um, yeah, we all know those teams, don't we? Uh, they just somehow have a knack of making the best of crunch situations. How much of it was a triumph of good decision-making by the right people at the moments that mattered most? Well, look, you know, in the end, you have to make a lot of decisions in a game of cricket, and if even half of them pay off, you've done pretty well. But uh, there was a clarity about uh, Australia's decision-making that was really impressive in terms of selection, in terms of decisions being made at tosses, in terms of uh, in-game match management, uh, and, and a recognition of moments where the game was, was there to be, to be won. Even in that middle period of the, um, of the Indian innings, where Australia was constantly permutating its, um, its bowlers, knowing that India had this long tail, knowing that Rahul and Kohli couldn't afford to take too many risks. That idea of kind of smuggling cheap overs into the middle of the innings must have been inordinately frustrating. And, you know, that's how Kohli gets out because he's, he's defending and attacking and falling between two stools. I hardly ever see Kohli drag on. That's a man who's not thinking completely straight. And then the ball starts to reverse and immediately Cummins brings um, Stark back into the attack to take advantage of it. That's quicksilver decision-making. That's on the spot. The coach hasn't told you that. You just recognise it and you, and you go with it. And then in that early period of the Australian innings where the ball is doing a bit, you've got Shammy who's been lethal to left-handers all the way through this tournament, Boomer bowling really good heat. They lose three wickets, but they go hard. 
And by six or seven overs in, the asking rate's down to four and a half and over. So from that point on, Labuschagne comes in at the perfect time to settle in. And every time it looks as though Australia needs a boundary, somehow Travis Head finds one. Just outstanding cricket. Great to watch. In the end, not a close game, but every wrinkle um, and every, uh, every instant was, uh, was, was worth cherishing. What are we learning about Pat Cummins, the captain? Well, I always say this about captaincy. 90% of it is what we don't see. It's how the team is travelling, how the team is feeling about itself and each other. Uh, are they confident in one another? Are they coherent? Are they, um, are they in thrall to the team plan? And a lot of that comes from the captain. A lot of that comes from his relationship with the coach and the, and the, and the support staff. So just the way, the manner in which Australia tackled this World Cup was a testament to his captaincy. The 10%, which is tactical decision-making well, uh, like I said, you, uh, you have to make a lot of calls. Some you get right. If, you, if, you, if you're getting half right, you're doing well. Well, he got more than half right. He got them 100% right in that, uh, in that final. Uh, look, and one day cricket comes out of it well. You know, it, 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 this, it's not set and forget captaincy in ODI cricket. You do have to think on your feet. Um, it's not something you can nut out in advance. And, uh, and Cummins showed that it can be done by a bowler as well as a batter. I feel like the story I most want to hear is what happened at zero and two when the team, yeah. there's no disguising yeah. how a team feels yeah. by the way a team's playing. And they dropped so many catches in that yeah. game against South Africa. And I would contrast that to how they fielded in the semifinal mm. and the final. So if that's a, if that's a guide, whether it's a, I don't know, is it a meeting? Is it, what is it that happens at zero two that changes well, I think the what, mood. I think what we're learning is that there is so much cricket being played now. The schedule is so intensive, but human beings aren't robots. So there's a natural kind of rise and fall in intensity and players make their own judgments about what's important. Often players are coming back from no cricket at all. Now, they, they, they don't get a chance to sort of pace themselves back into competition. They have to go from zero to 100. And that's difficult, even for players as experienced as, you know, a Mitchell Stark or a Josh Hazelwood. Uh, so uh, you, I think you'll probably get into the situation where teams tend to start a bit slower yep. these days um, and, you know, maybe even look on preliminary engagements as, as, as warm-ups, which they, now, which they no longer get. Uh, but instantly, you know, once they, this is a long tournament, you did realise that you had to be there at the end. Maybe subconsciously they were just hanging onto the reins a little bit early on. But, uh, and, yeah, there were periods where they looked absolutely done. Seven for 91, chasing against Afghanistan. Well, I mean, that's just, that's as remarkable an innings as I think I've ever seen. Certainly yes. in ODI cricket. Yep. The, the final itself, the demonstration of, India's cricketing might and beyond, like mm. that. Even the choreography of what time the prime minister was going mm -hmm. to arrive and how delicious that he arrived at the moment where you just knew Australia was going to win. That the Pat Cummins grabbing the lead up. There's nothing more satisfying than hearing a big crowd go silent. So yeah. feel like that will yeah. pass into folklore. Yes, it will. I mean, having been at uh, Modi Stadium early this year for the Test match for a, for a. For a five-day game, they could frankly still be playing, yes, which, yes. which was so boring, and uh, and the and the and the and the play so monotonous. We barely got through two innings, uh, 
it's not terribly sympathetic ground, I must say. Uh, if you'd not been there before, it could be a bit intimidating. But, of course, Australia had. And a lot of these players have played IPL. Um, they know exactly what they're, what they're in for. So you have to come up with ways to respond. And, and Cummins's line about the satisfaction of silencing a crowd was, was well considered because when the crowd find, found themselves silent, what did they do? They couldn't fool themselves into believing that they could make a noise. That was genuine mass dejection. Yes. Mm. Yes. Oh, I love it. It was. The, so they couldn't get going during India's battle mm. after the mm. first assault. And then they got going when Australia was three for 47 and every ball had so much on it. But then it reminded me just a fraction of um, preliminary final night where Collingwood had the whole crowd against the Giants and they weren't playing very well. And you can feel the groans from the stand pouring Mm. onto the field. They know they're not playing very well. Oh, and by the way, 90,000 people are making it perfectly clear that you're not playing very well. And I've never... From 70 runs out, there was a certainty that Australia was going to win. Mm. I can't ever remember mm. feeling that in, no. a, in a game no. in India before. No. It reminded me a little bit of the 2007 grand final, Jerry. <laughs> I don't think I believed until we were halfway through the last quarter that, it, that Geelong was going to win that game. What do you think, uh, I don't know whether you've sampled it, what do you think the reaction in, the, in India would be, given that this whole construct was around their might? It's a good question. Um, I filed a piece yesterday for uh, for The Wire in India where I tried to keep the schadenfreude out of my voice, but it was admittedly quite difficult. Uh, I think, I think, I mean, in hindsight, it, it is awfully obvious what a, um, uh, what a propaganda exercise the whole World Cup was. I mean, the very fact that it was a World Cup with 10 teams, I mean, that's ridiculous. It was India plus nine extras, nine cones for, for India to, uh, to, to run around. And the fact that there were no foreign spectators there at all. In the final, you know, we kept going to these three blokes in their yellow jumpers. Yeah. I don't know. I'd love to know how they got in. Uh, it was just so awfully obvious uh, what, was, what was going on. That afterwards, I think the reaction has to be, um, well, I'm hoping that it's, uh, isn't this wonderful, you know, how unexpected sport result could be. But I suspect there will be some recriminations uh, along the line. Uh, they kept flashing also on the commentary to the, to the BCCI box, you know, full of potentates and celebrities and people leaping to their feet and uh, for choreographed applause like people, you know, at a speech of Stalin's. Uh, but you know, and there is a certain amount of satisfaction to be derived from seeing people so disappointed. The, even the presentation, which I think I could watch that presentation over and over, is the prime minister has very little interest in handing the trophy mm. over to Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the chore the choreography of it is. Pat Cummins is stuck with the two politicians yep. while the fireworks all the, fly. Yeah. So in the moment where the team is supposed to be there yep. and filling the air, no, no, we're going yeah. through this. Oh, and then they all had to shake their hand before they could join Pat yep. Cummins up on the stage, which I guess fits in with what you saw on day one at that same I think by, most, by that stage, most Indian punters had turned off there. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so I, I loved this World Cup. I'm sort of happy. Yeah. I thought the cricket was... Um, enthralling mm. largely, and the time mm. zone worked perfectly. So yeah. You could watch the first innings at seven yeah. thirty, and then yeah. Yeah. Um, was it was it a good World Cup? Uh, 
I still have reservations about a 10-team World Cup. I think it's a bit of a contradiction in terms. It's like a tall, short man. Uh, you know, there, were, there are 48 competitors in the next football World Cup. That genuinely feels like a global sport. This still feels like a bit of an elite racket to me. And the fact is that the, the major nations don't really want to support the smaller nations because that means that the pie is carved up more ways. And the other unsatisfactory thing about it, I think, is that you know, four in ten dollars that the cup makes will go straight back to India because of the way in which the finances of global cricket are um, are constructed. Uh, it's it's just basically a giant sluice in which the you know, the, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So yeah, that, it was very satisfying some of the cricket on the field. I enjoyed, really enjoyed watching Afghanistan and the Netherlands. Um, they're always the games that that I, I take the most interest in. But in the end, it feels a little bit uh, much ado about nothing. Um, you know, it's, it, did it really feel like the cricket world on display? I didn't think so. The, the future of 50-over cricket from here? Well, it's going to be good. At, it's still going to be good in, in multilateral events yep. like this. Uh, I, I think you know, nothing satisfies like a World Cup. But I think the same doubts uh, hang over bilateral ODI cricket, which is, is less meaningful than, than ever. Uh, and I think in the, in the cycle between 2019 and 23, uh, a lot of the leading players didn't play at all. Now, that was, that was where boards took the opportunity to rest their players. You, know, you only need to look at Pat Cummins. You know, he only, I think he only captained two um, Australian games before he went into this, into this World Cup. Uh, we are also got that to that moment where... There's going to be a natural runoff of, of senior players after a World Cup. Lots of players retire in the wake. We already know some of them. There'll be more. Uh, so uh, who are going to be the starring attractions for, for ODI cricket in future if it's going to be sort of half the first 11 and six ringers uh, every time a, a nation takes the field? And the last element is is from this moment in time, if we forecast forward, what level of affection do you think Australia winning this World Cup in these circumstances will garner as time goes on? Well, look, sometimes I think we mistake our middle-aged malaise for a general popularity uh, call on the, on, the, on the game of cricket. I mean, ODI cricket has always been popular in India. That's why they were so desperate to, uh, to win it. Uh, I think it's still a good entertainment proposition. It's just got to have meaning. And that's what the World Cup lends us. You know, in the end, there is the satisfaction of crowning a world champion. It doesn't come much bigger in sport. But for bilateral ODI cricket in Australia, I still think that the jury's out on that. Mm. Mm. And, we've, and we've lived that fairly graphically mm, in recent yeah. times. And this team's accomplishment, so I feel like 87 for... Um, for sort of how foreign it was and how novel yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, 99, yeah. we've always clung yep. to 99, yep. probably above all others. Mm. I felt like in the first blush yesterday, this eclipsed all else for the circumstances that Australia had to navigate in the, in the final itself. It was bloody good. It, and, and it defined itself in, in contradistinction to that period, 99 to 2007, where we just seemed to turn up and everyone else seemed to lie down. You know, uh, the, the sheer scale of the event, the sheer monolithic nature of, of the Indian support and the sense of predestiny around the whole yep. cup makes Australia's achievement all the worthier. Gideon Haig is in the studio. We're going to tell you about his two books, The Girl in Cabin 350 
and the recall of Ashes 2023, a cricket classic coming up. Melbourne's weather, cloudy, a top of 20 for city power, supplying power to homes in the CBD and inner suburbs. Now, back to Waitley. Robertson the Cummins steers it down. The third man, it's got plenty on it. Will it reach the rope? They'll get at least a couple. Dive in. It's full run. No! It's knocked no. over the boundary rope. <laughs> Pat Cummins drops his batted helmet and wheels away in celebration, as he should. Australia, where they fell two runs short on this ground in 2005 due to a stunning, unbeaten stand of 55 here this afternoon for the ninth wicket. Cummins and Lyon have led Australia to one of their greatest Ashes victories by two wickets. It transports us back to Edgbaston and it is the image on the front of Gideon Haig's Ashes 2023 book, a cricket classic. Pat Cummins, helmet already dropped, bat in midair as those winning runs are registered. So it, it takes us back, Gideon, to the... God, one of the series of our lifetime. Uh, even-handedly, the English edition features Joe Root playing a reverse ramp on the cover. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was it. writing simultaneously for two newspapers. I was running for The Australian and for The Times. So uh, I gave them the same copy. I got very interestingly different responses to it, particularly at Lords, as I, uh, as I recall. So this is um, the anthology of the columns that you wrote in real time? In real time, I also wrote match reports um, after each game, which um, and uh, and some linking pieces uh, along the way about uh, about being on tour because you know it's still the tour. Yep. It's still it's still you still feel like you're in another country. Sometimes when you're in another country on a on a cricket tour, you just feel like you're in cricket land. You never see anything of uh, of what's surrounding you. But England, there's still the opportunity to uh, to take in the surrounds. I played some games over there. I went to some interesting places. Pete. Lawler and I were podcasting, and uh, it was a serious travel as well as uh, sporting experience. How do you, with with the months that have passed, uh, and it is one of the series of our mm. lifetimes, um, how do you how do you think back on it as a as a whole before we pick out the individual? Well, instances? so I'm glad I've done the book because you know these things do disappear quickly down the memory hole, uh, and it was compelling uh, that. Some of the longest days of sports writing I can remember, games, days that went very, very late uh, for very, very close results. You know, test match cricket tends to blow margins out uh, because over the course of five days, a definitively good team can, can put a fair distance between themselves and an ordinary team. These games went into the last hour each time with all uh, results possible. The only test match that was one-sided was the, was the Old Trafford game, which was washed out. Um, so uh, as a sports writer, you're always thinking, um, I'm as good as my material. Uh, you, you can't turn you know, strawberry jam into caviar. These, this, this was caviar. You just had to provide the bread for it, yep. and it was absolutely delicious. It was like 2005. I was there for 2005 writing for The Guardian. That, I thought, was going to be my benchmark sporting experience, but I think 2023 might have been even better. Is it day five at Lords? Is that the day? <laughs> well, that was hilarious that day. Uh, it's, um, yeah. I was watching through the glasses um, as Bearstow wandered out of his ground and I saw the stumps break and I saw him look over his shoulder in consternation. I thought, oh, you're out, mate. You're out. There's absolutely no doubt. And you know it. And you know it. 
uh, and you're looking around in panic for someone to save you, but you know that you can't be saved. So they wander off and about five minutes later, Athers comes over and he says, in that sort of Athers way, so what do you think? I said, it's out. He said, yeah, every day of the week in league cricket in Manchester. Yeah, okay, that's the sensible view. But unfortunately, there was a huge divergence of opinion between, I think, those who who had a close relationship to cricket, professional cricketers, that kind of the, 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 the punditocracy, um, the former England captains even, who were unanimous that, uh, that Bairstow was out. And people whose acquaintance with cricket is more kind of distant but also emotional, uh, who felt who, – who probably fell back on national stereotypes – uh, for the English, it was an example of the Australians, you know, they always take things a little bit too far. And in, um, and the Australians always, and also the Australians thinking, oh, the English, they're just so precious. You know, really, they should just get over themselves. It was kind of hard to, it was, it was a very complete cleaving of opinion. It was very hard to find um, a middle ground. I played a game the day afterwards for the Authors' Eleven at, uh, at Burghley Park. So I was the Aussie there. And uh, I, did a, I did a Vox Pops beforehand. Um, what did they think? Everyone thought it was out because um, they're cricketers, because they're cricketers and they're, and they're sensible. But when we were out in the field, a wicket fell uh, late in the day and the, uh, the new batsman took a fair while to get to the crease and in our celebratory huddle, someone said, oh, we should appeal for timed out. <laughs> and they all looked at me and said... Oh, let's leave it to the Australian. Now, that's what they'd expect of him. <laughs> Did it change life on the streets, the, the, the environment around the test matches? Did you think? Oh, it was already yeah. hostile. Um, from well, what... actually, I mean, in the lead up to that, there had been people complaining that it was too polite. Okay. But the, t- the two teams were getting on too well, that there was a little bit of an absence of needle, a bit of a lack of competitiveness. Well, that was fixed overnight. Uh and the crowds were poor after that. The crowds were the crowd was terrible on that last day at Lords. Um, and of course, the behaviour by the members was was absolutely obscene. You kept sort of waiting for someone to laugh, but no, <laughs> it was deeply, deeply earnest and heartfelt. And I went on talkback radio on a few occasions, and people were very emotional about it. I suspect they were emotional about more things. I, I thought England this summer was felt more brittle than, than I can remember it before. I, I don't know whether it's the cumulative impacts of Brexit and, and two years of COVID house arrest, uh, but there was, a, there was a feeling somehow that they were just a bit chippy, spoiling for a fight. And if it hadn't been this, maybe it would have been something else. Do you, and you wrote about the crowds and yeah. about previous experiences in England, is there a risk that we return the favour in a couple of years' yeah, I time, I say there will be. Yeah, I'd like to think that we would set a better example. I, I actually think that crowds in Australia over the last few years have been pretty good. The um, the incidences of misbehaviour have been pretty isolated. In fact, sometimes I feel that the all the sort of killjoy ordinances out there have spoiled the fun of being in an Australian crowd. But uh, but the fact that the response in England kind of passed without very much comment and was sort of completely unregulated. And Australians were just regarded as a sport, uh, was a bit galling. If an Indian player had stumped Bairstow 
under those circumstances at Lloyd's, you wouldn't have heard boo. Right. You wouldn't have dared. You wouldn't have dared take on the, the might of India. There is a feeling that Australians are just fair game and they should they just have to suck it up. It's more than just the action that happens on the field with cricket. So I felt quite Republican case. afterwards. Uh, <laughs> Very <laughs> nice. Uh, more with Gideon after Nathan in the newsroom. I thought the decision to define baseball in the dictionary missed the whole point. Mm. It's just the most bland idea of it's attacking cricket. No, no, no. It is mm. so much more than yeah. that. What do you yeah. think baseball is having lived through it? Well, we went on a bit of a journey because um, we, we were the great baseball sceptics when we arrived. We thought, okay, you've been able to do it against these other sides, but wait till you do it against Australia. Well, they did it against Australia and they just kept on doing it. Uh, I never thought I would see two teams approach cricket so differently. You know, they scored at 4.74 runs and over. Over the course of a five-test series, they allowed us to bowl one maiden every 19 overs. Uh, and we we considered one maiden every five when we were batting. Um, we scored at 3.3 and over. It was it was like watching an ideological argument for, uh, for for test cricket with both teams absolutely dedicated to uh, to, to the mode that they were they were following. Uh, I think the Austra- I'd be interested to know what the Australians think of it in hindsight. I wouldn't be surprised if you see Australia play slightly more attacking yes. cricket this summer because you know it, there's no doubt it was fun, and it um, and the England team did get a lot of momentum out of it. Um, and and a lot of unity out of it. The fact that everyone had to sign up to the plan. There were no, there are no atheists in foxholes where baseball is concerned. <laughs> did, did England win the drawn series? Yeah, I suspect they did. Yeah, I hate to admit it, but they probably did. I think if there'd been another Test match, I think it would have gone England's way. Uh, obviously Manchester was overwhelmingly in their favour and it would have been amazing if they had won. If they'd won from 2-0 down, um, the only time that's happened since 1936-7, that would have been remarkable. But in the end, I thought it was probably a fair result. Even though England played exhilarating cricket in those first two test matches, it was error-strewn cricket. You know, they got wickets with no balls, they dropped catches... Uh, there was that impetuous declaration from uh, from Stokes in the first test. Uh, they made mistakes and allowed Australia to get back into games that Australia had no right to. So uh, when they were 2-0 down, and but to their credit, they're 2-0 down and they just say, well, we're just coming back for more. We're not modifying our approach at all. They bring Mark Wood in and he's just a revelation. Oh, it's just something about watching super quick, raw pace bowling. And he was exhilarating in those last three test matches. Amazing that he played three in a row because he, he found it very difficult to string consecutive test matches together. But he was outstanding to watch. He was like the Joffre Archer of, uh, of, of 2019. And you know, and that last day at the Oval, well, you just wouldn't have been anywhere else in yeah. the cricket world. It was just astounding how many emotions you went through that day. Uh, I, I thought... Stuart Broad, incredibly audacious to announce in advance that it was going to be his final day of cricket. That could so easily have blown up in his face. But amazingly, just occasionally, cricket goes to plan. Are we allowed to lament the ball change? Or as Athers points out, is that where we become the whingy Aussies? Yeah, look, I didn't. In the end, I don't think there was any sharp practice involved on that last day. It was, it was, 
we there was a ball change in the third test match where Australia got an advantageous one and Mitch Marsh suddenly started to to swing it around and he got Zach Crawley out. These things are always a bit of a lottery. Uh, in the end, it was a very, relatively brief period when that ball swung. Anderson, the best swing bowler of all time, didn't swing it at all. So there was something about Wokes and uh, and and Wood in that offing that that goes to their skill, not simply to their opportunistic. Uh, the advent of a, of a of a newer ball. All right, that's Ashes twenty twenty three, a cricket classic. It's a series that will be studied for years to come, and this will be a centerpiece of it. Um. More favoured in this instance, I think. So if you've read Gideon's Certain Admissions, A Bohemian Scandal, or The Night Was a Bright Moonlight and I Could See a Man Quite Plain, we'll tell you next about The Girl in Cabin in Cabin 350. This is, um, it's a remarkable story. And it's a study of proper journalism, which I'm happy to tell you about with Gideon next. Waitley for Hyundai. The Hyundai 2023 SUV event is on now and Host Plus. Waitley on SEN. Gideon Hague's writing is so much more than sport. If you have collected in recent years certain admissions, a bohemian scandal, the night was a bright moonlight and I could see a man quite plain with the cricket bat as the murder weapon, I add the girl in cabin 350 dossier of a disappearance. Um, I don't want to tell the story of this book, Gideon. I do want to thoroughly recommend it to people. Okay, right. um, but I don't want to spoil much okay, of what's right. in here. But so just give me a, a snapshot of who is Gwenda McCullum. Okay. Well, well, I'll tell you how I came upon the story. I was launching a book late last year by um, by the journalist Michael Cannon, um, a posthumous memoir. And in it, he described meeting 1949 in Melbourne. He met a young woman called uh, Gwenda, uh, whom he um, befriended, attempted unsuccessfully to seduce, uh, then lost touch with. And then about a month later, he gets a copy of the Afternoon Herald, and there is her photo on the front page. She has disappeared from the ocean liner Orchides as it travelled from Sydney to Melbourne. The, uh, the, she had gone to Sydney. She was coming back to Melbourne with a whole gang of people who were coming to Melbourne for the Melbourne Cup. Uh, so um, in those days, there was enormous ceremony and, uh, and pageantry about an ocean liner leaving dock. But with this, uh, with with the spring racing carnival in the offing, it turned into a bit of a, uh, a bit of an extravaganza, um, a very inebriated, very celebratory, uh, with punting going on by radio on deck uh, as the, as the ship travelled. Scene that you've written, and down. the night got out of hand. The next morning, the uh, her cabin door was opened by the steward, and she wasn't there. Um, and the mystery was never solved. And I thought, gee, that's an interesting story. I've got to find out more about this. And the only way I'm going to find out more is if I write a book about it. So I set to finding out how you do it. And often it's the case that you don't know how you're going to write these books when you uh, when you begin with. It's just a case of following every trail until you can go no further. How me- So this the beauty of this book is you don't quite realise which rabbit hole you're going down until you've taken us down them, yeah. which in real time, how much can you learn from a coroner's inquest to divorce papers? Yeah, how yeah, much- yeah. How do, you, how do you know where to look? Well, you always go first looking for the family. You think there must be some sort of family connection. So you go 
about putting together a genealogy for the family and trying to trace the descendants. And that's long, laborious, hard work with a lot of dry gullies along the way. But I did actually manage to get in touch with, uh, with Gwenda's descendants, uh, the children of her brother and sister. They all knew a little bit of the story, not all of it. It had been a well-kept secret in the family. They all had little aspects of it. Interestingly, none of them were talking to one another at the time. The family um, is a bit fragmented and they're all estranged. So they'd never actually discussed it in the, in the family circle. So it was, they were quite interested in, in what I might discover. Then you start, there was also a branch of the family that, um, that they knew nothing about. Uh, and interestingly, there was a woman called Gwenda in it. I thought, oh, that's too interesting. Two Gwendas in the same family on opposite sides. I have to know more about this. I traced a descendant through uh, a probate file and then through the electoral rolls. Uh, I found that there was still a telephone number for a man called S.F. Thomas in the, uh, in the phone book. I wrote letters to that address, didn't get a reply, thought, okay, there's nothing for it. Out of suburban Melbourne, took two and a half hours to get there on train, a tram and walking. No one there. I put a note under the, um, under the door. Uh, and a couple of days later, I get an email from S.F. Thomas, who now lives in the Philippines, who has rented the house out to four young blokes, but they have recognised my name as a sports journalist and said, oh, Gideon Hague's trying to get onto you. Uh, you should give him a ring. So I all of a sudden found out about this other family. This other family was never acknowledged that was fundamental to, uh, to, to the story. Look, it was such fun to do. Uh, but I never took my eye off the fact that it was a profound tragedy yep. and it had huge impacts on the family. In some respects, the, the family's fragmentation is a result of, of that day, of this, this mystery that was never resolved, this secret that they were never able to talk about, uh, and this unacknowledged person, this gap in the, uh, in the family circle. It's boots on the ground, old mm. school journalism. Is there... Was there one primary uh, document, piece of information that, I don't know, that you were, that you knew you were searching for, or maybe more interestingly, that you didn't know that you were searching for, that lands in front of you along the way that, that took your breath away? Oh, there were some astounding ones. Like, um, okay, so Gwenda had worked at, uh, at a Methodist hospital, uh, maternity hospital, and I thought, well, maybe there are records to do with it. So... I wrote to the uh, Uniting Church uh, archives to see if they had records of that particular hospital. And yes, in fact, they did. And not only that, but they had a scrapbook of photographs from that hospital, which had recently been donated by another nurse. And there she was, pictures of Gwenda, looking beautiful, looking very attractive, looking terribly vivacious with her whole life ahead of her. And to hold that in my hand, well, that was... Um, that was just astounding. And then there was the watch. Her watch survived in the family's care that she was given on, uh, on her 19th birthday. And to hold that was to feel uncannily connected to this, uh, this thwarted life. Um, look, it was a fantastic journey. Um, that's part of the fun of journalism, isn't it, Jared? You start off not knowing where it's going to take you. You just have to go with it. You have to go with the story. Nothing is foreordained. You might find out something, you might not. Uh, but in the end, it's just terribly rewarding. And it's, it's 
I love the idea of the dossier of a, a disappearance. Mm. There's theatre life in Melbourne from the yeah, time. Yeah. There's fantastical stories of battlefields and war mm, adventures. Yeah, so yep. it's amazing in the different directions. Nightlife in Sydney. Um, it, it actually gives you a really interesting glimpse of Melbourne in this in this period. That, and that period between 1945 and 1956 and the advent of television, there are a lot of people out on the streets in Melbourne of a night because you have to go out and find your own entertainment. So all sorts of paths are crossing. That's the story of certain admissions, my yep. book, on, uh, on another 1949 murder case. And it just so happened, this was obviously meant to be, the detective who investigated in certain admissions was the same one who investigated in The Girl in Cabin 350. Perfect. My mother-in-law and I love these books, Gideon. James, so speak to James here. Okay, I'm sucked in. Where can I get it? Okay. Uh, well, just go to my website, gideonhaig.com, email me, and uh, and I'll give you all the details. All right. There's little piles of books we want to help. Um, They're in my kitchen. Down. My mother's looking at them very severely. So Gideon's website, The Girl in Cabin 350. Thanks for coming. It's great to see you. Cheers, Jared. See you across the, the summer of cricket. Gideon Haig in the studio. Now, back to Waitley. GideonHaig.com. That's Gideon's website. You can order his books there. Ashes 2023, a cricket classic, and The Girl in Cabin 350. I'd absolutely recommend that to you. If you do happen to be a youngster with an eye towards journalism, studying at uni is that it's a it's an academic study as much as anything else, is just how to do the profession and what can come of it. As some very sad news in footy circles, which we will share with you in a moment. Now, back to Waitley. In the past half hour, Tony DeBolfo has informed us that Ted Hopkins has passed away. A figure right from footy folklore. If 1970 is the great grand final, then he's the central figure in the great turnaround of Carlton. Comes from the bench kicks his four goals and doesn't have much of a story in footy until he founds champion data. So on a couple of fronts, Ted Hopkins shapes the history of football. He has passed away. Here's a bit of Ted from a 2010 Spirit of Carlton lunch with Tim Lane. What was the message from Barras when he actually said to you, you're on? I... Um... My best um, recounting of what happened at half-time was actually the message from Jack Rout, who um, people Quiet, in please. this room, um, some of the people will remember what a great character he was as chairman of selectors. And early on, you know, when they came off the ground, I think Jack sort of said, uh, be prepared. Um, during that year, I'd spent, I think, um, something like 20 games starting on the bench, so I was pretty well rehearsed and expected <laughs> what my role would be. Um, I understood the relationship with uh, Ron. He uh, respected some of the attributes I had, which was to sort of read the game quickly and get on and just be lively, be energetic, trying to make a difference. So, uh, you know, we, we often argue about this. Um, you know, he says he, he made the call late <laughs> in the, in the halftime break. It was Jack Rout that um, I knew that there was something happening. <laughs> <laughs> He'd given you a warning, but Barras delivered the official confirmation. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. 
And he came on and kicked four goals. Ted Hopkins, in his 29-game career, he only played one game after that 1970 grand final. Ashley Brown got to know Ted through the years and knows the history of these things so well. Ash, thanks for coming in. Jared, good to be here. Um, well, he's such a figure, isn't he? He is well, he's adored. He's an iconic figure at Carlton for his role in that 1970 grand final. He's the classic small forward that, you know, Hawthorne drafted one last night. It just play, at the, plays at the feet of the tall forwards, gets the ball and kicks the goal. He sparked Carlton with those four goals. And within a few minutes watching, I'm not, well, it didn't, wasn't at the game. I've seen the replay. Within a few minutes of the, that third quarter, he, he sparked Carlton. He was the difference maker. Something different. You know, poor old Bert Thornley gets dragged. Hopkins comes on, kicks those four goals. Hero of the game. Right, plays one game afterwards. One game in 1971 and disappears from football for probably 20 years, 25 years, to the stage where he would be recognised. Are you Ted Hopkins? No. Right. Didn't want, you know, just wasn't into footy at all. He saw a bit of alternate lifestyle, that sort of thing, bit of a hippie, I think. And uh, and then he had the epiphany. And that is champion data, which now sort of governs so much of the game. It is. And so he's thought, had, had worked out, and I helped edit his book. If I know this, I have the book. I helped put together the book he wrote with Slattery Media in 2011. But he had the sort of the come to Jesus moment about stats could be, in footy could be done better. I think he had, had a mathematical analytical background. We used to get a green book from Ray Young once a week when I was back at the age, and they were your stats. You'd get them a couple of days after the game, and he realised this could all be done a hell of a lot better. So in the mid-90s, he started, how can stats be done better? So, And at the internet was coming in, uh, online uh, data was becoming in, and so he, he tapped in at the perfect time to build the stats business, understood the data that clubs were after. That was a big part of champion data. There's the retail side of champion data that we see, there's the wholesale data that the club and the industry yes, yeah. get from them. And he foresaw all of this. So it's just a perfect storm. The internet, the game becoming full-time professionals, bigger coaching staffs. He rode that wave and created champion data. And then fantasy football, of course, grew out of that we all play, or most of us play, grew out of that stats uh, information as well. So he was just the right man at the right time. A quirky guy. We used to see him at the press box a lot. You know, he'd be doing stats. He'd be hanging around the media centre. Fascinating guy to talk to, really, really. A bit eccentric, I think. I don't think his former teammates would say the same thing. But, you know, you talk about the, 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 the people who've turned football from the old suburban competition it was into the national behemoth it is now, he has a role, absolutely has a role in shaping the game that we know and love and consume the way we do now. So a really an enormous loss, and I I'm, I'm hope and I'm sure he'll get the sort of the the tributes he deserves over the next few days. Yeah. So what level of affection at Carlton is we're getting lovely memories through a vision of the little blonde number seven. Yeah. Just, it's just, it's just fantastic. Uh, I think it was a water skier back in the day before he became a footballer as well as a water skiing champion of some sort. So yeah, just a, a wonderful part of Carlton. He embraced football again later on. He then fell out with champion data and he had Ted stats for a while, but, um, and he had a third way of looking at football, which never, quite took off. But if you get a chance to trawl through a bookshop and find his book, The Stats Revolution, I think it's called, really, and his life story and how he came to see that the statistical part of the game, it's a great read. Ash, thanks for popping in. Good to be here. So the sad news that Ted Hopkins has passed away. Tony DeBolfo, uh, the Saucy Valet. Ted Hopkins, water skier, author, poet, publisher, broadcaster, data analyst, and as a Carlton Premiership player of 1970, football's most famous bench warmer. Valet Ted Hopkins.
Staying with our footy theme, our AFLW segment for MEGT, helping women kick their career goals in the trade industry. It might be the best game we've seen yet, the semi-final between Geelong and Melbourne that went to the wire. We've ticked over 23 and a half minutes in the final term. Lauren Pierce grabs it out of the rock, curls it around. It's a behind. It's a behind. Melbourne trail by five points. Emmonson takes the kick in. High ball for the Cats. Melbourne need a mark. They don't get it, but off hands, Mithin. Feeds a handball to Heath as the siren sounds. Geelong are victorious and progress through to the preliminary final in the most extraordinary semi-final we have seen in the AFLW. Melbourne out in straight sets. Sarah Ollie is our guide here, afl.com.au. Sarah, hello. Hello, Jared. And had that Lauren Pierce kick been a goal and, and not a behind, we go to extra time and who knows what happens. But it's not to be. The Ds for the second time this year out in straight sets. And full credit to Geelong, who were the best team for three quarters. How high an accolade would you award that game? Best yet, best yeah. final? What would you say? It's been an ongoing conversation, at least in my groups of friends and in the office all week. Where does this match sit? And I think the consensus is it's one of the best matches we've ever seen. And I think because of the drama of it, I mean, for three quarters, the Ds didn't look like they had a hope in hell of even being competitive with the Cats, who at three-quarter time were 30 points up and they've got one foot in the door of a preliminary final against Brisbane. And then Mixtineer comes out, he moves a few magnets around, and the Ds of old were back. Eden Zanker, incredible, with three goals in that final term. And had that Pierce kick gone a different way, it looks like perhaps it was going through for a goal. We might be talking about something very different indeed. But I've got to say it's one of the best games I've ever seen. What about you? It was it was riveting. So we were on quite good terms with it uh, as Geelong supporters, <laughs> and then <laughs> it it really did wind you in. So what are we to? I know Melbourne get uh, the mitigation of they finished so well and they gave themselves a chance late, but this was a pattern that had developed late in the season and afflicted their finals. Is what happened to Melbourne? Well, I think if we dig a little deeper, perhaps this lull has been going on than just the last few weeks. And we've been talking about their inability to score. I mean, it's the halfway mark of the semi-final at the weekend. They've scored, I think, two goals in 10 or 11 quarters. So that just shows you how this juggernaut of a scoring team had really dropped off. But from round one to five, they had five wins and they were averaging 79.8 points. From thereafter, three wins and four losses and averaging 44. So really, I think they peaked at the midway point of the season. Perhaps other teams found the blueprint to figure them out. Perhaps it's also, Jared, just really hard to go back to back. And perhaps, as Mick Stenier did say after the match, this shows that there is growth within the competition, that other teams can come up now and can beat the reigning Premier. And perhaps that isn't a bad thing, but I mean, the Melbourne girls were bitterly disappointed to go out in that fashion. And they might be asking themselves, 
what were we doing for the first three quarters? If we can produce a quarter like that when everything is on the line, what were we doing? Because they look to have missed a pretty big chance. How significant for Geelong, uh, Sarah, there is the, the big picture element, as you've referenced there. Yeah. As we saw on uh, the night before when Adelaide uh, made mincemeat of, of Sydney, and that's been the gulf between the top four and the rest. Um, and even when I spoke to Dan Lather about it in the lead-up to the elimination final, he, he spoke about, uh, it's not, in, well, I guess it's an inherent inequity for the time being, and Geelong was able to bridge that. How, how significant is, is the result? Oh, it's hugely significant because, as you say, the gulf between the top three, Melbourne, Adelaide and Brisbane and the rest, has been pretty glaring. It's been a chasm, really. And you go back to round five where these two sides did meet and Melbourne won by 49 points. So they've been able to flip the script in a matter of two months. And while they're through to their second preliminary final, it's really their first preliminary final in earnest because the other time they made the final four was when we had conferences they played Adelaide back then and they got smashed down they kicked one goal but they'll be riding a wave of confidence to come up against a Brisbane side who has once again shown that they are one of the sides to beat but I think this is a real mental hurdle for Geelong and their one would all season has been starting really strongly we saw that in the first final as well against the Bombers and if they can start strongly against the Lions perhaps just silence that home crowd going to go a long way into making this a really competitive prelim. So I think big ticks for Geelong. Is there a player who has elevated during during this finals campaign? And is it Nina Morrison, the number one pick? Oh, she was sensational, wasn't she? I mean, you can see now why Nina was the number one pick. She's had her setbacks with ACLs along the way, but she just seemed to have a bit more time and space than any other player on the ground. And actually... She wasn't on the ground in the final couple of minutes. So uh, Dan Lava just couldn't really get her back out there. So perhaps if she'd been out there, we they would have had maybe a little bit more composure. But I just thought Nina really elevated herself. Amy McDonald, I thought, was sensational. She's a real tough and under midfielder and came out with the first two goals and really helped set the tone. But, yeah, that, that midfield at Geelong, it is... It's rather young. I mean, Nina's only 22, so the future is certainly bright there and she's going to need to play another big role this weekend. The Crows were quite ruthless with the Swans in a 12-goal to two game. It, it wasn't surprising. It, it was it was very impressive, I thought, from Adelaide after they'd narrowly gone under in their qualifying final against the Lions. Well, the fairy tale came to a screeching halt for the Sydney Swans. We did forecast this. I mean, if you looked at where both sides finished after the home and away season, it was first against eighth. And I mean, the Swans had never played the Crows before. This was always going to be a massive test, particularly on their home deck at Norwood Oval. And I just think it shows the gap between a team in their second year and a team in their eighth year. And, you know, it was it was a good chance for the Swans to see just what that gap is and, and the improvement they need to make. And uh, Matthew Clark, the cross coach, said after the game, I think that's our first four-quarter performance of the season. So um, they're hitting their straps, at least, in their coach's eyes at the right time. And for Scott Gowan, you know, he just said, well, we're not quite yet there yet. And, and that's just what it is. It's the gap between a team that's been around since inception and one that has come in last season. But the Crows looked rather menacing 
And I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to that prelim with the Roos at Icon Park on Sunday. I think this could be an absolute humdinger. The Brisbane Lions and Geelong, North Melbourne and the Crows. Uh, we've had you with your seedings along the way. Is, who's your favoured pairing here? Who will make the grand final in your estimation? I think it might be a repeat of the first grand final we ever saw, which is the Lions and the Crows. Um, having said that, North Melbourne have done nothing wrong in the last few weeks at all. I just feel like Adelaide, though, they're, they're at their menacing best. And I think they're going to be really tough to beat. And I think the Lions might just be a little bit too classy for Geelong. But we'll wait and see, won't we? And, of course, we're going to wait and see where the final will be played. If North win, it's at Icon. If North lose and Brisbane win, it's up there. And then if Adelaide wins and Geelong wins, well, then it's, it's, it's over in Adelaide. So there's still a few permutations to work out there as well. <laughs> Rich possibilities. Um, the AFLW Best and Fairest will be on Monday night. So we've kept this in camera. Could you please roll out your final five from this AFLW season as to who have been the best players from five up as a precursor to the medal? All right. Well, if I was picking the award, Jared, a number five I would have from the Sydney Swans, Laura Gardner, who's perhaps not one of the Swans that we've spoken about in terms of Chloe Malloy ad nauseum, but she's had a really solid season in the midfield and is part of the reason that they've really shot up the ladder this year. In fourth, I'll have a former Best and Fairest winner in Lion, Ali Anderson. In third, the Dancing Tiger, Mon Conti. In second, she was the inaugural rising star. That star continues to rise. It's Ebony Marinoff. And come on, everybody. <laughs> Number one, it has to be Jasmine Garner. Jasmine Garner, you, you've been so consistent all the way through, Sarah. Jazzy Gardner at, at Garner at one. Ebony Marinoff, the Crows of two. Monconti of Richmond at three. Ellie Anderson, Brisbane, four. And Laura Gardner from Sydney at five. And the other uh, order of business is there are four clubs now searching for new coaches, yeah. Sarah, as the, the churn's been pretty significant. It's incredible. I feel like the footy has been so good that we haven't really spoken about the coaching merry-go-round, but we've got Beck Goddard retiring from Hawthorne, Steve Simons as part of ways with Collingwood, Michael Pryor and the Eagles have finished up and Nathan Burke acts from the dog. So, Four clubs in the Western Bulldogs, Hawthorne, Collingwood and West Coast, all searching for new coaches. And so that's going to be interesting as well with a fair bit to play out. We just got a month away from Christmas. We've still got uh, the trade period to come up and then the draft on the 18th of December. So I just wonder how quickly these clubs will be looking to get a new coach in. I mean, some of the names that will be bandied about to the likes of Mel Hickey, of course, a former Geelong captain. She's now the Geelong Falcons coach, a former line coach, the Dogs. Perhaps some old names, Daniel Harford, Trent Cooper. They've both coached in their own rights before. Then there's someone like a, a Jane Land. She was at Melbourne as an assistant for years and is from the Darabin Falcons and, and really well regarded. So a lot to play out when it comes to the coaching merry-go-round as well. Sarah, these are busy days. I really appreciate your time. Enjoy <laughs> the preliminary finals. Enjoy the best and fairest, and we'll talk to you next Tuesday. 
Thanks, Chad. I'll speak to you then. Sarah Ollie, afl.com.au, our AFLW segment for MEGT, MEGT Women in Trades, Advance Your Workforce with Female Tradie Power. Visit megt.com.au. Melbourne's weather, cloudy at top of 22 for City Power, supplying power to homes in the CBD and inner suburbs. Now, back to Waitley. On Tuesdays, we reach across the divide between Melbourne and Sydney. It's a cultural divide. It's a sporting divide. It's a lifestyle divide. Sometimes we find ourselves bitterly opposed and others united. We are united in the glow around Australian cricket. And I do just want to explore the spectacular coup in Australian rugby, which is obviously much bigger news in New South Wales and Queensland than it has been in Victoria. But it is quite the study of a sport that uh, manages to... Well, there's a bit of a count here after after a failed strategy is probably the most polite way to put it. We do this with Andrew Voss, who is the voice of Rugby League, and he is the host of SEN Breakfast in Sydney. Hello to you, Vossi. Good morning, Jared. We are united. Well done on the call. Loved it. Um, how good was it to talk to Barat? He was still at the ground. Yeah. <laughs> we had him on our breakfast show. He was still there about four and a half hours later, still at the ground with the lights still on. What sort yeah. of glow do you detect around it as it felt like one of the great cricket accomplishments of our lifetime? Yeah, I think people have. Um, I, I think the assessment straight away was, you know, you can make grandiose statements, can't you, after you've just seen a, a grand final or an innings. You, you say, oh, that one's one of the best of all time. But even when the dust settled some 24 hours on, people were still sort of rubbing their chin going, boy, I can't think of a better win. Um, certainly in clo- coloured clothing, Crash Craddock, I think, got it right straight away. And then strategically, I'm calling um, I'm calling one of the great wins in any sport for Australia tactically. Uh, I, I just think so good the 22 bowling changes, the, yeah. the the little cameos of Mitch Marsh and Travis Head, the the restriction of the boundaries, the magnificent fielding that backed it up. No, from every angle, we have experienced, witnessed, listened to one of the great moments in Australian sport in my book. I think for Pat Cummins in particular, is I guess we get to live this in real time with public reaction on various topics and mm, he'd true. been labelled a, a woke captain and hadn't. there was a portion of the community that wanted to hold out against him because he was prepared to, uh, to lead, to, to have a say in real life as well as just in sport. On the sporting front, though, is... He surely has um, silenced any of the questions around his his captaincy, his tactical nous, and maybe this is the ascension to the level that I think he he's owed, which is a a, a feeling of loyalty and and love towards him. I think he's a great Australian leader. Yeah, well, and, and look, first and foremost, and across any sport, you know, I've, I've banged that on the, against the wall about this. Winning cue is everything. Like winning. Like winning makes you feel good for a start, so it's very hard to you know hop on your high horse and criticise when someone is winning. But to win in such emphatic fashion and the breakdown Pat Cummins' performance as captain in a ODI where there's a lot happening, and as I just mentioned, you know, 22 bowling changes, and for him to bowl so damn flawlessly, um, the 10 overs, the no boundaries is is as good as it gets. Could you could you imagine better from a captain? I mean, if a, if there was a... I, I don't know whether a batting captain could boast what Pat Cummins achieved the other night because 
the batsman does his job in a separate innings and then goes out and doesn't have the responsibility of bowling. But but not so for Pat Cummins. And then you think back to the semi-final. I mean, well, he, yeah, he got us across the line with the bat as well. So Pat Cummins, captain, contributor, um, I'm going to score him in the World Cup 99 out of 100. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what I've taken the one off for. <laughs> it might have been the first two games somewhere. But, you know, the, he has to be acknowledged. You, you, if you've been a criticiser, if you've, if you've dissected in the negative previously, then put your cue in the rack and give credit where it's due. Otherwise, your opinion cannot be taken seriously from this day on. We had a suggestion yesterday around uh, the ticker tape parade for an, a triumphant Ooh. returning team for the, the town hall reception. Um, we, we think that belongs in Melbourne. Did you did you want to claim it in Sydney? Oh, oh, hang on. Yeah, 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 hang on. Pat <laughs> Cummins is a Penrith boy. <laughs> Look, um, they deserve something. They deserve something somewhere. Uh, I'm not going to get in, into an argument about it. They Look, if Anastasia Palaget can declare we need to build statues for the Matildas when they finish fourth at the World Cup, well, then the very least we can do is one ticker tape parade. I don't know how you coordinate across all the states. I will concede. I'm, not in, I'm a lover, not a fighter this time of year, Jared. It's late yep, in the yep. year. <laughs> I don't want to get into spats with you. We may be the sporting capital, as in Sydney, but Melbourne can have the ticker tape parade. <laughs> Good stuff, Mossy. Hey, I wanted to ask you about the spectacular coup at Rugby Australia. So my first position is I admire this. Hamish McLennan missed his cues. He yes. should have resigned yes. after the Eddie Jones fiasco. He was culpable and accountable for it, but he yes. took the position of, no, I'm still the best person for the job. And the only people who had any control over that were the states, and typically they wilt. And he, oh, well, he says he's the best person for the job. We don't have the stomach for it. And on Sunday night, rugby had the stomach for it. They rolled the man who shouldn't be the leader anymore on the strict grounds of this was your strategy. It failed. You're accountable. A bit like the Optus CEO. You can't go on. Yeah, well, there's a there's a stink about Australian rugby, if I can put it in those sort of almost crass terms. I mean, uh, it's been a PR disaster. It's been an on-the-field disaster. It's been an off-field disaster. The, the, the most rusted-on rugby union fan, and we, we obviously in Sydney have more contact than you would in Melbourne, haven't come up with a positive. from the Like, it just feels like it in not just a wasted year, gone back a hundred paces wasted year. So if there's no casualty at the top, then what the hell were they doing? What I found funny was that having speared him, the chairman, they then offered him a position on yes, the board, yeah, yeah. Which, which is just which, which made me think, well, hang on a second, I'm not sure whether I have faith in your vision. And then in the last 24 hours, to then come out and say that we're going to have a high-performance... Oh, that would just shake around in the background and get that back. Uh, because rugby is just at a, at a remarkable phase after the botched World Cup, Eddie Jones, the Zoom meeting with Japan. Now the chairman has been rolled. <laughs> that yeah, that that quirky moment where they offered. So Vossi, you're just in full steam in the in the past twenty four hours. They've announced they have announced that they will appoint. This is the direction they want to go. Appoint a high performance director 
who will then in turn select the Wallaby coach and the Wallaby coach will be answerable to that person. Now I'm saying if that, if they believe, if they really believe that's the way forward right now, I'm saying they're the length of the Flemington Strait and then some away from, from logical advancement in this sporting, in professional sport. I, I can't believe that you would find a Wallaby coach selected. It's almost like a buck pass to a high-performance director. The, the simple man listening to our show this morning basically made the point, and I say that figuratively, well, why not make the high-performance director the coach? <laughs> like, if that person is so eminently qualified, then that's your coach. If there's someone you know, better qualified than that person. So I, I just think rugby remains a basket case, despite the change of a chairman. Um, and they have to prove otherwise to the sporting public, not just the rugby fans, but the other, the other sporting fans in the country at the moment. They're not even laughing at rugby at the moment. They just raise their eyebrows and move on and get on with their life. Rugby yeah. is not important at the moment to the rank and file. Yep, they have a lot to work through. Terrific, Vossi. Good man. Uh, we'll reach across the divide next week. I mean that. We are still the, the capital, the sporting capital, Sydney. We've got the Australian captain, Pat Cummins, Penrith boy. I, could, I talk about it. I, now, back to you, Jared. It's your show. I'm letting that pass. I'm letting that pass. Andrew Voss hosts SEN Breakfast in Sydney. Uh, Flight Centre's big red sale is on with limited time offers on flights, cruises, holidays and tours. Book now to save big. Here's Nathan in the newsroom. Nathan, thank you. We have learnt in the past hour of the passing of Ted Hopkins, a figure of folklore from the 1970 grand final and much loved at Carlton as a result with his four goals in the second half. A premiership teammate is David Mackay. Swan, terrific of you to take the call. Thanks a lot. Yeah, very sad news, Jared. Uh, I knew he wasn't well, but um, very sad news to hear of his passing. What level of affection, Swan, is there for Teddy Hopkins within your team and within the broader Carlton community? Oh, massive affection because, uh, you know, uh, losing Brass and then now uh, Teddy Hopkins, uh, they were both instrumental in that 1970 victory and he was revered for uh, the the part he he played because when he came onto the ground, in fact, it was quite an interesting story because at uh, halftime, just as the players were running out, um, Brassy decided that, uh, without reference to the match committee, that he'd take Bert Thornley off and bring Teddy Hopkins on, and it was ended up being an inspired move because then Hopkins set us a light, a light in that uh, second half, uh, kicking four goals and um, really bringing the the game from uh, being very much in doubt from a Carlton perspective, 44 points down, uh, to bring us back into the game with those four goals was magnificent, and as a result of that, we certainly. Uh, Everybody uh, appreciates and, and loves Teddy Hopkins for uh, for his uh, his his uh, role in that game and also uh, the way he was off the ground. He was a good friend to a lot of us as well. So he did he have a bohemian streak to him, David? He, evidently, he was a, a poet and um and and his his time in uh, his time in footy was brief after that 1970 grand final. Yeah, look, he he travelled to the beat of a different drum. He and Brent Crosby were quite different characters in uh, in my time. Uh, he was certainly involved in, uh, uh, he had some sort of a, a business uh, before he went into champion data. Uh, he uh, was collecting poetry and publishing quite obscure poetry. I must admit it wasn't quite to my taste, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he was, Bohemian is probably a very good word for him because he fitted well into the, the Paran and the Carlton culture where he, uh, where he, he particularly uh, hung out.
Swan, did it take him a little while in life to be comfortable with with being uh, back in the footy fold and telling his story? And I don't know whether he ever reveled in his role in what he was able to do in 1970. He probably he didn't really talk about it much after uh, after uh, 1970. I must admit, uh, any functions that I've been to, uh, he, um, he he did pretty much stick to himself. Although the fact that he got involved in Champion Data and particularly uh, revolutionised the way football statistics were um, were both collected and then published was quite uh, quite incredible because uh, it went from it, look when Ray Young started it, it was it was good, but uh, Teddy Hopkins took it to a whole new level. He's got such a place in footy history, Swan. Just, I wonder if you'd encapsulate that for us. His, his 29-game career at Carlton, which has got that signature moment and, and then what he was able to do with the, the evolution of tra- champion data. Look, he was a guy, who, as I said, travelled to the beat of a different drum. He was uh, uni- a unique character. He had uh, certainly a lot of football ability. He was an opportunist and he'll be remembered and loved forever for his his party in uh, winning that game that was we look, looked like that were being, we were in deep trouble and to, to get us back into that game and, and winning in 1970 was just uh, absolutely incredible and uh, he'll go down in history as a, a very important and revered figure in Carlton's history. That's beautiful, Swan. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jared. Good on you, David Mackay. There, premiership teammate of Ted Hopkins, who has passed away. This is Waitley for Hyundai. The Hyundai 2023 SUV event is on now and Host Plus. Now, back to Waitley. Jalen Hurts, he's got to come up with a miracle. He backs into the pocket. He lets the receivers get to the end zone. He stands and he heaves down the field. It's short of the end zone. And the Chiefs win Super Bowl 57. It is a legacy moment for Patrick Mahomes. It is testimony to the genius of Andy Reid. And it is pandemonium for this generation of Chiefs. That's how the Super Bowl finished in February. The Eagles and the Chiefs are about to reconvene. Monday Night Football in the States is 25 minutes away from kickoff. If you're after me for the rest of the afternoon, I am unavailable. Ben Graham, I'm sure, will be suitably transfixed as well. Hello, Benny. Good morning, Jared. Goosebumps. Getting back to that moment, that was a fantastic game. And what we're going to see shortly is only the seventh time that we see a Super Bowl rematch the year after. And funnily enough, it's the Super Bowl champs that are 5-1. and one. So the history will say that the Chiefs should go in favourites, as I think that they will. But given that they've both got such fantastic records, they're both number one seeds in their conferences. We could be seeing another Super Bowl preview between the two teams. There's so much to look forward to for this game that's about to kick off. It's raining in Kansas City, so that, that'll have an impact on the quality of it. The Eagles are 8-1 and one and the Chiefs are 7-2, and two, and, and that that was my thinking. It is There's a very real chance that these teams are on their way back to the Super Bowl, so it, it has an added significance over what's about to unfold. Well, I think so. But what we're seeing, though, is two quite different teams than we saw in the Super Bowl. I'm not sure if Jalen Hurts can get much better than the performance in Super Bowl 57. We know the Chiefs' defense has far improved. Uh, We also know that they've only scored two passing touchdowns the last two weeks, the Chiefs. We understand the importance of that Patrick Mahomes-Travis-Kelsey relationship is. The weather may be a factor, but I, I think
think that the the Eagles are an interesting one because remember last year they were eight and zero, and we still had a lot of question marks over them. Yeah, we think that they're a better team and they're pretty much stamping themselves on the NFC again, but they really haven't beaten anybody. And we talk about that with the Dolphins too. So this is a big game for the Eagles, but I am expecting the Chiefs on the back of their defense and an improved offensive performance from Patrick Mahomes to uh, get the job done at home today. I feel like the most important happening of week 11 was the injury to Joe Burrow and Thursday night football. And just the, that just wipes the Bengals. Uh, Do you share that view? Yes, I do. We, you know, it is a quarterback league. Joe Burrow is many people's favorite quarterbacks. He's, He was at the top of his game after his calf injury, got the Bengals back on track. They did lose the game to the Texans, but this, it's an interesting one. Did he have an injury coming into the game? Should he be on the injury report? But the fact is he started the game. He went out in the second quarter and now it puts pay to his season. And I think the Bengals season, three games behind the Baltimore Ravens in their own division. So it was going to be tough to come out of the AFC North. But it was a big story. Finally, we got a great matchup on Thursday night football with the Bengals and the Ravens. But unfortunately, we saw Joe Burrow go out and Mark Andrews, who they may come back for the playoffs with that ankle injury. But their injuries have been a real talking point all season, but particularly this week. And with the Browns staying with the AFC North, to Sean Watson out for the season with that shoulder injury. And just briefly, Ben, the Sean Payton effect on the Broncos. So he's now got them to five and five for a team that looked totally lost right at the start of the season. Is uh, are we seeing the value of great coaching at the moment? Well, they have changed their season around. They're they're on a four game winning streak. They've beaten some good teams like. The Chiefs, who we thought it might have been one out of the box, and then they back it up with the win over the Buffalo Bills in Buffalo. And then the Vikings, who had won five games on the trot. So you have to give Sean Payton credit. And Russell Wilson. We thought that he was going to establish himself as a consistent quarterback for the Denver Broncos last year, but the coaching change has obviously helped that. Their their receivers are playing well. The defense is up and about. So uh, the AFC West in general has underperformed with the Chiefs probably the only the team that you could um, hang your hat on because the Raiders and Chargers, they're in all sorts. But the Broncos, yes, you've got to give Sean Payton and uh, Russell Wilson credit. Enjoy the afternoon of football, Ben. I can't wait to sit in the couch and watch this. <laughs> Will do, Jared. Me too. Good stuff. We'll talk next week. Ben Graham, catch every NFL game this season with Game Pass only on DAZN. Visit nfldazone.com forward slash NFL. Tidy up. Touch base with Dwayne next.